0: to Mesoamerican Studies on Air. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Jonathan Rangel, who is a Mexican citizen currently based in France, working on documenting and revitalizing Ayapaneco, an endangered Mijesoque language in Mexico. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share a little bit of your research with me. Um, I know that you are a linguist, but before we dive into that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what brought you to the field of linguistics. What what got you interested in this topic?
1: Yeah, well, general linguistics. I always was interested about uh, about languages in general. You know, it was fascinated me uh, the different languages and everything has to do with languages. Since I was in I don't know, probably elementary school and uh, then high school and everything continued my interests. So yeah, that's how I decided more or less that I think that my path should be like something related to languages uh, because I was interested in kind of like learning other cultures, learning about uh, other other uh, languages, how people like write other languages and like how many languages in the world, like basically diversity. I was interested in that. So that's how like picked my interest and uh, well, I decided linguistics was a it's a good career or a good um good feel for me.
0: hmm And it, it is a fantastic area, a fantastic topic to study. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your most recent work? You just defended your doctoral thesis. Um, what what did you do for that research?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I just defended my 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 PhD in linguistics at Inalco, which is the something like what you call a National Institute for Oriental Language and Sensibilization in France and uh yeah the the research well basically my thesis is well as every thesis is very specific uh but my dissertation was about language variation in uh yapasoke or yapaneco which is a critically underdocumented and understudied endangered language that is spoken in southern mexico so uh my thesis is about the variation in this language um and uh well Yapa uh, Soque, uh, which is kind of like a language that belongs to the Mije family, and that family of languages that is spoken along the Tehuantepec Isthmus around Veracruz, Chiapas, Oaxaca, and Tabasco. And, well, the Yapaneco is one of the languages that is spoken in Tabasco, uh, nearby the Gulf of Mexico. So, uh, and uh, it's it's spoken in a village of approximately 5,500 people and this is kind of like medium-sized village for southern Mexico, we'll say. It's not as small, but it's kind of medium-sized. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what is interesting is that Ayapaneco is only spoken by approximately 9 to 11 speakers. So it's like a very, very uh, highly or critically endangered language. And uh, which the the total amount of speakers represent around 0.3, 0.2% of the total population. So you can tell that it's uh, very It's a minority language, very minority actually, Mm. Uh, and uh, also, I mean, all of the speakers are bilingual and are elders because uh, they're older than, I mean, 70 years old and older, up to 95 years old, so uh, that's, uh, that's because the language hasn't been transmitted for over 60 years now and uh and also the language was very it's very limited i mean the use of the language is very limited people the speakers Romanian speakers they use it like a not too much because they don't have who to speak with and uh and uh well the language was never written until very recently so basically my research was kind of like jumping into this um very critically endangered language but specifically working on variation and well i can tell you a little bit more about that, but that was the main the main uh, objective of my thesis, so let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, and that's such such an important topic. There are so many languages that are in danger, that are in danger of disappearing completely. Um, so what brought you specifically to Ayapanic?o Out of all the languages out there, how did you settle on this one?
1: Well, uh, the first thing is, like, as I said, one of the things, there were a couple things that it was, like, uh, uh, the well i wanted to study well to work in a language that it was like a uh, not very well documented kind of like contribution to that well this was one of the languages that in mexico that is were under documented and understudied so right there we have like a, something that it was like a direct contribution to see what was happening in is this language i didn't know before starting to work in the language if we how many speakers were there like i mean i didn't know anything because there was no information um no very not a lot of literature about it just two or three articles before me like from the 60s and then from 2000 and that's it so it was like kind of like exploratory i didn't know what i'm gonna find so that was the first motivation i I knew that that existed but i didn't know what was happening there so i think that it was more like trying to figure out what was going on in this area or in this language uh and that's like the main one of the main reasons uh but um in in the terms of the research what it really picked my interest is because um and regardless of, I mean why focus on variation and I think that's one of the questions because generally when you work in critical danger languages what the uh the researcher or linguist do they document it right or describe them right. so that's kind of like not to work in a very theoretical aspect of it without any documentation or studied previously to that so uh, I think I try to do the opposite to try to start with a very like a specific point and trying to to see what is going on there and that's because language variation i mean i noticed something when i started to work on this is that uh, it is a consensus among linguists that language varies all the time we know that all the language varies that's for sure mm-hmm. uh now the problem or that what i found is like some researcher that working in critically endangered languages such as yapaneco in other parts of the world they noticed that these languages and kind of exhibited a large quantities of of kind of variation that they could not not explain by means of social or linguistic factors so that was the first thing that i noticed in the literature everyone that i was working in this similar context found out that it was pro- the variation for them was problematic to work with and they didn't know why or what kind of variation was that why they kind of like actually analyze it correctly so it just let it for later on uh, let's call this unstructured variation because uh variation usually is structured in one or two ways, either by linguistic uh, context, this means like, I don't know, like in English you say a uh, an apple, but now you don't say like a, uh, I don't know, like you have the indefinite article that changed regard, regarding like what the noun, mm-hmm. is, it's a, a vowel sound or like a, a consonant, that's kind of like linguistic. And then the other, you have the social aspects that actually makes the language change. For instance, like someone that is like from East Coast Use different vocabulary, or speaks a different way that, like, somewhere from like the West Coast, or vice versa, in Mexico, Central Mexico, or Southern Mexico. That's kind of like social is regard, uh, related to social factors. But there was a kind of variation that didn't structure in any of those terms, and which is complicated to to actually study or analyze or even document. So that was exactly one of the points that. So um, all the researchers working in these kind of like topics, they. Take, took for granted that this was normal. I mean, like, quote, unquote, normal for critical mm-hmm. and languages to vary that much in such an inexplicable way uh, because they were going through a process of language loss. So it was considered that this was a clear symptom for some language erosion, they would call it. Uh, but the problem that I found is that even though that this hypothesis made totally sense, I didn't, it didn't explain what this erosion mean or what, how work. In other words i mean i couldn't tell uh what were the mechanism of this variation what causes them and if only affected critical endangered languages such as yapaneco and why only those kind of languages so i decided to take on all this mostly unexplored questions through the lenses of a case study that happened to be a very under documented or understudied language which is a Yapaneko. so it was like like a double challenge first documenting a previously under documented languages and at the same time that describing and explain the way it varies. So that was pretty much kind of like what he brought me to this kind of study.
0: Right. And that really is a challenging study. You know, you're you're already working with something that is undocumented or less documented than other sources and yeah. you're approaching these problems and I I love the fact that you recognized okay, everyone's just been assuming that this is normal um yeah. and then you looked a little deeper into it
1: yeah yeah exactly that's i mean the the thing is like you take it as sometimes what happens you take for granted some things Mm -hmm. you say like oh this is oh it's normal that happens like that it's common sense well common sense is not as common as you can think so Mm -hmm. when you start looking into the detail you say like well i mean it's like no one think about or, or study that because they take it as granted common sense so when you don't study in common sense like you 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 don't you're missing a lot of things that are happening right there so actually I noticed that because when I started to dig in a little bit into this, I noticed that no one could explain. So everyone like the same, uh, a lot of uh, sources of uh, literature say like, yeah, those languages are African language. That happened. It's normal. It's normal. Everyone, but no one actually w- wanted to engage in that. And I, I I think that I knew why they didn't want to engage because we didn't know how to engage in this. Mm-hmm. So that was the main, one of the main aspects that I was kind of interested in to kind of like explore that and see what's going on. And if I could managed to explain somehow to, 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 to explain what was going on in this situation.
0: So what did you find out as you were looking into these variations? Well, um, yeah, so I found
1: like a very interesting thing that the, the main point here is like variation in critically endangered languages, because it's the case that I'm studying specifically. It's uh, multi faceted kind of like phenomena that can only be that cannot that it cannot only be explained by saying that this is due to language loss so it's, it's very simple that in that case is not as simple as that and and I I found out that they're like it's an iterative process that follows like a snowball effect and involves multiple explanations like such as reduced size of speakers uh, group like lack of local norm, lack of children to speak the languages, etc. There are like a certain like a lot of factors that are only just one factor, and they work like in a snowball effect, and then like impact well, the kind of like variation that we find. Other thing that I that I found out is like uh, I confirmed that actually yeah, it's an important proportion of variation found in this kind of language that is unstructured, and this just right there has like a multiple implications for future language theories or for the field language documentation and description. So uh, because now we need to kind of like think about it uh, for whatever we're gonna do in the future, uh, what we're gonna do with this variation and how to deal with it. I mean, because no one was writing about this kind of variation that we couldn't explain because we couldn't explain it. So now, I mean, I found out that there's like this variation and the, the question is like, how we're going to work, we're going to do with it and how we're going to deal with it in different domains. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that was one of the the things that I found. And also something interesting that I found is like, they, I mean, all the literature talk about erosion of the language. Like it was like this process that it was actually, I don't know, like if like eroded stone or like eroded, like, I don't know, physical thing that is like mm-hmm. eroding with pollution, with rain and everything as language was such a thing. And I noticed that it's more dynamic and it doesn't really erode like in the sense of like, erosion in like physical materials so it's not it's this analogy doesn't really work with language and i think that it was one of the main things because i noticed that it was not an oversimplified language actually in some aspects it was way more complex than a language that is kind of like spoke by millions of people so uh it's it's very it was interesting to find out that that it was like actually something that it doesn't really happen but we again common sense we think that it's erosion or it's like language loss is equal to Russian but that doesn't work like that so like it's something interesting that that I found out.
0: right yeah and I think that's really interesting it and I think it's important that you found that this metaphor might not be the best way to describe language loss
1: no yeah 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 mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I mean there's like different um Speaking of the metaphor, I mean, like, well, we're, we can think about, we can talk about more about it, but what it's, uh, well, the metaphor, uh, other metaphor associated to this, the language loss, is that, um, is that uh, well, we we think also, I mean, people ev- evokes very often the analogy that language dies, and and I think that we need to rethink that, I mean, not to say that language because language doesn't die in a biological sense. So I think that, I mean, we will say better that they disappear from language practices or repertoire of a group of people, of community. Mm-hmm. So that's what is happening. And it's not die in a biological sense because actually language do not disappear due to natural or, evol- or evolutionary causes. Actually, language loss and revitalization is also multifaceted. And uh, the causes of language loss are very rarely, if not even never exclusively linguistic and i think that it's very important to mention that that uh is the language doesn't disappear because the evolution dictates that language has to disappear as if it was a species of animal or a kind of like biology um uh, situation so i think that this is another another uh thing that we need to kind of like uh talk about it and i think it's important to mention it as because this is a year, International Year of Indigenous Languages, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and I think that it's, it's it's important to bring awareness about this phenomenon of language loss that is not as simple as we don't think, and it's not like uh, biological in the sense of biological uh, explanations either. So that's something that important to kind of like uh, think about it.
0: Right. So and that brings me to a question that I had. So I have quite a few links that you were kind enough to send over to me where you have other interviews with Mexican news stations and you've done mm-hmm. different segments and interviews. And I'm going to post those onto the webpage for anyone who wants to see those. But I wanted to ask you, in the case of Ayapaneco, in one of the news segments, it talked about how the teachers have accepted that the language might not make it, um, <laughs> but they're still teaching to to provide this awareness to show that we've done what we could to save the language or to at least document it. How would your take on the death or non-death of a language compare with that? Do you think that we are doing all that we can? Are are there better ways that we can preserve language or is that even something to, to bring up?
1: Yeah, well, uh, the, the first thing to do, like, I think that it's clear, I mean, uh, another misconception uh, taking advantage of this point is that uh, we researchers, I'm talking about researchers, we do not save languages. I think that the future of the language is in their hands of the communities that own those languages. Mm-hmm. And it, precisely in this case, you can see it. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's there that they're going to decide what to do with their languages and how we're going to do th- those those things. And like we what we can do is like I mean, like researchers to provide evidence based information, support them and, the, and their efforts to document or revitalize their language. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those efforts and those actions are going to be like uh, community based and then have to be community based. And that's exactly in the, in, in the clip that you're talking about. I mean, they feel that the time is getting like, we're getting like, I mean, it's getting late a little bit too. Probably reestablished completely as the language used to be back in the day when their, their speakers were still young and everything, there was more speakers. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to be possible to do other things. I mean, a point here is like, that those classes of languages provide something very important, which is an, a space public space for the remaining speakers to actually connect among them because before they were like isolated for age and like uh i mean physical conditions they were isolated and this Mm -hmm. is this classes works as a space for them to kind of like reconnect with their language too and among them so i think that's very important even if the language doesn't make it or children or young people kind of learn it as the, the the elders at least we're providing this space and actually something is I mean the language is again visible and that's one of the main things I think that the language becomes visible gives them more chances to whatever the community wants to do with the language in the future at least they're visible now and like and now we know that the language exists and probably that was not the case 20 years ago with people even in the same village medium-sized village didn't even know that a language still was spoken in that village which is crazy to think about it Mm -hmm. but they didn't know because it was so small so at least right now it's public and at least more people in the village if you ask people like oh yeah I know this language and and they start to link that language to their uh, experience in the in the village or in the community so I think that is something that you cannot deny that is like a uh, benefit from all of this, and like what's gonna happen in the future, I think is hard to tell. But at least I know that is like they're going through changes, and that's is important. And uh, and uh, yeah, there're more actions to be uh, to to don't, to make, and like some stuff to to think about it. But I think that is something important that we cannot deny.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot of importance in the fact that it's now more visible. That visibility, I think, gives gives a lot of hope.
1: Yeah, exactly. Visibility is the beginning of everything how you can like help improve something when you cannot see it.
0: Mm-hmm. You need to
1: see it before in order to kind of like do something about it. And I think that's very powerful. The first thing that you can do is to kind of like make it visible and then like the next steps will come or the other things will come. But first you need to see the problem or the issue. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So what would you say is the most exciting takeaway from your research?
1: Um, in, um, in terms of my research, uh, well, this, I think that like specific to variation, I think that it's, it, it opens a window to rethink language variation in order to incorporate it to documentation, description, revitalization, and also like natural language processing, uh, because language variation is intrinsically related to the human experience of language but we need to look for models incorporated in all the domains that pertain like human language and that's what i said like there are different domains and like language variation it's been a thing that uh it's been kind of like uh in different domains it's been like yeah i mean you oversee it because it's complex to deal with it when it's very complex people tend to kind of like avoid it however it exists and i think this is one of the things that um we uh if we use language for instance for writing the writing a language actually hides all the variation because whenever you write something you fix something that doesn't change but language Mm -hmm. variation in the orality which is reality of the every language in the world that is spoken there's variation and like we have a lot of problems to incorporate understand and like kind of like incorporate this variation into uh into any other areas for instance i was mentioning natural language processing is very important because all the models for natural language processing are very probabilistic and sometimes the variation is not very probabilistic and like i know for instance like uh you know like uh all this uh google google assistant and everything they have they struggle a lot with variation i tested myself and i can tell that they struggle with different accents and different vocabulary and that's because they are not programmed for dealing well with variation so we, we see that there's like, I mean, there's a lot of, like, uh, a lot of issues here regarding to variation and that, uh, and with this study, I think that we have to rethink variation in a different ways and that will help us to actually build and use the language. And I mean, in the way that it actually is because language is equal to language variation is the same. I mean, it's part of it. You, you cannot hide it.
0: Right. Yeah, I think there's, um, there's definitely some truth to the, to the comparison between language and a living thing right just because it's in constant interaction and use by human beings yeah
1: yeah yeah exactly like it's part of the it, it the thing is like like variation is kind of like part of the the, the human experience of language so mm-hmm. I, that's something that you cannot separate in completely and I think that's one of the, the things that uh, and, and you see it in the, the interesting about the study is like we see variation in languages with millions of people and we see variation with a such a small language with all the people live in the same and uh, the same village. They know each other. They have the same religion. They're very homogeneous in social terms. So that tells you that like that's something universal about language that is right. like various. Maybe I should add about, um, about uh, yeah, endangered languages, about critically endangered languages, that that's something that it's uh, important to, to mention that I didn't mention, that actually languages, in the same case as a Japanese represents about 10% of the languages of the world right now, in this moment we're speaking. Wow. So, so, 10% of those languages, probably in 10 years or 15 years, um maybe le- less it will be like another 10 percent. maybe we're going to reach 20 percent of the languages in the world soon that is going to be in the same situation a la- that means a language with very few speakers in proportion with the larger community the speakers that are bilingual and they're elders no transmission for decades probably limited use of the language uh and some of them under documented so whatever we do right now in this case uh w- if we figure out how to analyze the study and also like revitalizes languages is is gonna be something important because like for the next for, for the next years we're gonna have more and more languages in this same situation so uh, I think that's important to mention because like if the case of a Japanese or languages such as is not actually very few of them actually there are a lot of them in the world and we need to kind of like uh, approach in you know, a different ways these languages are so trying to figure out what to do
0: hmm absolutely. There's a lot that needs to be done. And I think, I think this brings us back to what we were saying earlier, right, about visibility. It's important that we make sure yep. that these languages are visible and also valued for what they are, um, even if they're not considered one of the, you know, the, the big major languages that makes the world go round on a, on a large scale.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. The facility, it actually, that's what I've been doing all this year with, like, a lot of outreach and trying to talk in about this specific kind of languages, the critically endangered languages, trying to kind of, like, actually talk with people, I mean, sharing my uh, experiences and everything, because I think it's important, something that we don't talk about it a lot, I mean, or we talk about endangered languages, but we don't talk in this level of detail, we don't talk about these languages that are about to disappear in that, like, Similar conditions, and we don't talk why, and we don't know what we're doing, and how. Like, I mean, there's a lot of questions, and we don't talk a lot about it. Uh, but yeah, I think that this year was a lot of like to trying to make them visible, and to, by trying to make them visible, probably we can start thinking, you know, or uh, thinking ways of doing something.
0: Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. It was really great getting to talk to you about your research.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You can find links to Jonathan's research as well as other interviews that he's had on the Mesoamericanstudiesonline.com website. In the meantime, stay tuned for next week's final episode of season 1, where we interview David S. Anderson about his work fighting pseudoarchaeology. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.